This is the Reformation in England by J.H. Mel Dobinier. This is chapter 18, and this is called The Onslaught on Luther, 1517-21. Whilst a plain minister was commencing the Reformation in a tranquil valley in the west of England, powerful reinforcements were landing on the shores of Kent. The writings and actions of Luther excited a lively sensation in Great Britain, his appearance before the Diet of Worms was a common subject of conversation. Ships from the harbours of the Low Countries brought his books to London, and the German printers had made answer to the nuncio Aleander, who was prohibiting the Lutheran works in the Empire. Very well, we shall send them to England. One might almost say that England was destined to be the asylum of truth. And in fact, the theses of 1517, the explanation of the Lord's Prayer, the books against Esmer, against the papacy of Rome, against the bull of Antichrist, the commentary on the epistle to the Galatians, the appeal to the German nobility, and above all the Babylonish captivity of the church, all crossed the sea, were translated and circulated throughout the kingdom, the German and English nations having a common origin and being sufficiently alike at that time in character and civilization, The works intended for one might be read by the other with advantage, the monk in his cell, the country gentleman in his hall, the doctor in his college, the tradesman in his shop, and even the bishop in his palace studied these extraordinary writings. The laity in particular who had been prepared by Wycliffe and disgusted by the avarice and disorderly lives of the priests read with enthusiasm the eloquent pages of the Saxon monk. They strengthened all hearts. The papacy was not inactive in presence of all these efforts, the times of Gregory the Seventh and of Innocent the Third, it is true, had passed, and weakness and irresolution had succeeded to the former energy and activity of the Roman pontificate. The spiritual power had reigned the resigned sorry, the spiritual power had resigned the dominion of Europe to the secular powers, and it was doubtful whether faith in the papacy could be found in the papacy itself. Yet a German, Dr. Eck, by the most indefatigable exertions, had exhorted extorted a bull from the profane Leo X, and this bull had just reached England. The Pope himself sent it to Henry, calling upon him to extirpate the Lutheran heresy. The king handed it to Wolsey, and the, the latter transmitted it to the bishops, who, after reading the heretics' books, met together to discuss the matter. There was more Romish faith in London than in the Vatican, this false friar, exclaimed Wolsey, attacks submission to the clergy, that fountain of all virtues. The humanist prelates were the most annoyed. The road they had taken ended in an abyss, and they shrank back in alarm. Tunstall, the friend of Erasmus, afterwards Bishop of London, and who had just returned from his embassy to Germany, where Luther had been painted to him in the darkest colours, was particularly violent. This monk is a proteus, I mean an atheist, if you allow the heresies to grow up, which he is scattering with both hands, they will choke the faith and the church will perish. Have we not enough of the Wycliffeites? Here are new legions of the same kind. Today Luther calls for the abolition of the Mass. Tomorrow he will ask for the abolition of Jesus Christ. He rejects everything and puts nothing in its place. What? If barbarians plunder our frontiers, we punish them. And shall we bear with heretics who plunder our altars? No, by the mortal agony that Christ endured, I entreat you. What am I saying? The whole church conjures you to combat against this devouring dragon, 
to punish this hell dog, to silence his sinister howlings, and to drive him shamefully back into his den. Thus spoke the eloquent Tunstall, nor was Wolsey far behind him. The only attachment at all respectable in this man was that which he entertained for the church. It may perhaps be called respectable, for it was the only one that did not exclusively regard himself. On the 14th of May, 1521, this English Pope, in imitation of the Italian Pope, issued his bull against Luther. It was read, probably on the first Sunday in June, in all the churches during High Mass, when the congregation was most numerous. The priest exclaimed, For every book of Martin Luther found in your possession, within fifteen days after this injunction, you will incur the greater excommunication. Then a public notary, holding the Pope's bull in his hand, with a description of Luther's perverse opinions, proceeded towards the principal door of the church and fastened up the document. The people gathered round it. The most competent person read it aloud, while the rest listened. The following are some of the Lutheran heresies, which, by the Pope's order, resounded in the porches of all the cathedral covenant, covenant, coventual collegiate and parish churches of every county in England and were the subjects of papal condemnation. 11. Sins are not pardoned to any unless the priest remitting them, he believes they are remitted to him. 13. If by reason of some impossibility the contrite be not confessed, or the priest absolve him, not in earnest but in jest, yet if he believe that he is absolved, he is most truly absolved. 14. In the sacrament of penance and the remission of a fault, the Pope or Bishop doth not more than the lowest priest, yea, were not it, where there is not a priest, then any Christian will do, yea, if it were a woman or a child. So these these are the teaching of, 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 of Luther, basically, that you can be forgiven by God directly without the need for a priest, and um, you don't need a Pope. You don't need indulgences. Um, 26. The Pope, the successor of Peter, is not Christ's vicar. He's not the successor of Peter, either, to be honest. 28. It is not at all in the hand of the Church or the Pope to decree articles of faith, no, nor to decree the laws of manners or of good works. So this, these were the things that Luther said that the Catholic Church was condemning, that the Pope had written a bull against. The Cardinal Legate, accompanied by the Nuncio, by the Ambassador of Charles V, and by several bishops, proceeded in great pomp to St. Paul's, where the Bishop of Rochester preached and Wolsey burnt Luther's books. <coughs> but they were hardly reduced to ashes before sarcasms and jests were heard in every direction. Fire is not a theological argument, said one. The Papists who accused Martin Luther of slaying and murdering Christians, added another, are like the pickpocket who began to cry stop thief, thief as soon as he saw himself in danger of being caught. The Bishop of Rochester, said a third, concludes that because Luther has thrown the Pope's decretals into the fire, he would throw in the Pope himself. We may hence deduce another syllogism quite as sound. Rochester and his brethren have burnt the New Testament, an evident sign, verily, that they would have burnt Christ himself also if they had had him. These sayings were rapidly circulated from mouth to mouth. It was not enough that Luther's writings were in England. They must needs be known, and the priests took upon themselves to advertise them. The Reformation was advancing, and Rome herself pushed behind the car. The cardinals saw that something more was required than these paper auto-de-fe, and the activity 
he displayed may indicate what he would have done in Europe if ever he had reached the pontifical chair. The spirit of Satan left him no repose, says the papist Sanders. Some action out of the ordinary course is needful, thought Wolsey. Kings have hitherto been the enemies of the popes. A king shall now undertake their defence. Princes are not very anxious about learning. A prince shall publish a book. Sire, said he to the king, to get Henry VIII in the vein, you ought to write to the princes of Germany on the subject of this heresy. He did so. Writing to the Archduke Palatine, he said, This fire which has been kindled by Luther and fanned by the arts of the devil is raging everywhere. If Luther does not repent, deliver him and his audacious treatises to the flames. I offer you my royal cooperation and, even if necessary, my life. This was the first time Henry showed that cruel thirst which was in after days to be quenched in the blood of his wives and friends. The king having taken the first step, it was not difficult for Wolsey to induce him to take another. To defend the honour of Thomas Aquinas, to stand forward as the champion of the church, and to obtain from the Pope a title equivalent to that of Christianissimus, most Christian king, were more than sufficient motives to induce Henry to break a lance with Luther. I will combat with the pen, this Cerberus sprung from the depths of hell, said he, and if he refuses to retract, the fire shall consume the heretic and his heresies together. The king shut himself up in his library. All the scholastic tastes with which his youth had been imbued were revived. He worked as if he were Archbishop of Canterbury and not King of England. With the Pope's permission, he read Luther's writings. He ransacked Thomas Aquinas, forged the infinite labour, the arrows with which he had hoped to pierce the heretic called several learned men to his aid and at last published his book. His first words were a cry of alarm. Beware of the track of this serpent, said he to his Christian readers. Walk on tiptoe, fear the thickets and caves in which he lies concealed, and whence he will dart his poison on you. If he licks you, be careful. The cunning viper caresses only that he may bite. After that, Henry sounded a charge. Be of good cheer filled with the same valour that you would display against Turks, Saracens and other infidels, march now against this little friar, a fellow apparently weak but more formidable through the spirit that animates him than all infidels, Saracens and Turks put together. Thus did Henry VIII, the Peter the Hermit of the 16th century, preach a crusade against Luther in order to save the papacy. He has skilfully chosen the ground on which he gave battle, Sacramentalism and tradition are in fact the two essential features of the papal religion, just as a lively faith and holy scripture are of the religion of the gospel. Henry did a service to the Reformation by pointing out the principles it would mainly have to combat, and by furnishing Luther with an opportunity of establishing the authority of the Bible, he made him take a most important step in the path of reform. If a teacher is opposed to scripture, said the reformer, Whatever be its origin, traditions, custom, kings, Thomists, sophists, Satan, or even an angel from heaven, all from whom it proceeds must be accursed. Nothing can exist contrary to scripture, and everything must exist for it. Henry's book having been finished by the aid of the Bishop of Rochester, the king showed it to Sir Thomas More, who begged him to pronounce less decidedly in favour of the papal, papal supremacy, I will not change a word, replied the king, full of servile devotion to the popedom. Besides, I have my reasons, and he whispered them in More's ear. Dr. Clark, ambassador from England at the court of Rome, 
was commissioned to present the Pope with a magnificently bound copy of the King's work, The Glory of England. Said he is to be the most the glory of Eng- the, the glory of England, said he, is to be in the foremost rank among the nations in obedience to the papacy. Happily, Britain was ere long to know a glory of a very different kind. The ambassador added that his master, after having refuted Luther's errors with the pen, was ready to combat his adherents with the sword. The Pope, touched with this offer, gave him his foot and then his cheek to kiss, and said to him, I will do for your master's book as much as the Church has done for the works of St. Jerome and St. Augustine. The enfeebled papacy had neither the power of intelligence nor even of fanaticism. It still maintained its pretensions and its pomp, but it resembled the corpses of the mighty ones of the earth, that lie in state, clad in their most magnificent robes, splendour above, death and corruption below. The thunderbolts of a Hildebrand ceasing to produce their effect, Rome gratefully accepted the defence of laymen such as Henry VIII and Sir Thomas More, without disdaining their judicial sentences and their scaffolds. We must honour those noble champions, said the Pope to his cardinals, who show themselves prepared to cut off with the sword the rotten members of Jesus Christ. What title shall we give to the virtuous King of England? Protector of the Roman Church, suggested one. Apostolic King, said another. And finally, but not without some opposition, Henry VIII was proclaimed Defender of the Faith. At the same time, the Pope promised ten years of indulgence to all readers of the King's book. This was a lure after the fashion of the Middle Ages, and which never failed in its effect. The clergy compared its author to the wisest of kings, and the book of which many thousand copies were printed filled the Christian world. Cochlius tells us, with admiration and delight. Nothing could equal Henry's joy. His Majesty, said the Vicar of Croydon, would not exchange that name for all London and twenty miles around. According to a tradition preserved by Thomas Fuller, the King's Fool, entering the room just as his master had received, received the title, asked him the cause of his transports. The Pope has just named me defender of faith of the of the yeah, defender of faith of the of the faith. Ho ho, good Henry, replied the fool. Let you and me defend one another, but take my word for it, let the faith alone to defend itself. In the midst of the general intoxication the fool was the only sensible person. But Henry could listen to nothing. Seated on an elevated throne, with the cardinal at his right hand, he caused the Pope's letter to be read in public. The trumpets sounded. Wolsey said mass. The king and his court took their seats around a sumptuous table, and the herald, heralds at arms proclaimed, Henricus Dei Gratia Rex Angliae et Franciae, Defensa Fidei et Dominus Hiberniae. Henry, by the grace of God, King of England and France, Defender of the Faith and Lord of Ireland. It may seem strange that long after the Middle Ages, Kings of England should still lay claim to the title of King of France. Such was the case, however, until 1802, when George III relinquished it. The title is retained in the address to James I, often printed with the authorised version of 1611. Thus did it appear that the Pope of Rome and the King of England were united firmly in their resolve to maintain the doctrine of the Romish Church. Henry VIII had, as it were, thrown down the gauntlet. He aimed at warning all English followers of the German reformer that in his kingdom they might expect to encounter the utmost opposition of the law, which was little more than the expression of the royal will, 
and the use of that material sword in which the papacy so much delighted.